When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to Slate Money, a weekly podcast devoted to the world of business and finance. I'm Felix Salmon, Senior Editor at Fusion. Today, we're going to talk about Jed Rakoff, the judge who got tough on Wall Street, but who this week got overruled. We'll talk about negative interest rates and TLTROs and the ECB and maybe even IOER. What on earth am I talking about? Might it presage the death of banking as we know it? Tune in to find out. Finally, we will talk about the U.S. government crackdown on poor Stevie Cohen, who's down to his last $11 billion. And then, because the final thing is never completely final, we will have our numbers round, and I have been informed that some of the numbers are quite large. I am joined here in our New York studio by Kathy O'Neill, a former hedge fund quant turned Columbia University program director. She blogs at mathbabe.org. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Felix. And we also have Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman, representing every millennial. Hello, Jordan. And I do so with pride. <laughs> he's, he's vocally frying, and if you see him on the street, you have my permission to slap him. <laughs> He might be up talking as well. So, our first topic is the overruling, the bench slap, in Jordan's words, of federal judge Jed Rikoff. Kathy, remind us, who is this chap and what happened to him this week? Well, he's a folk hero for at least the people I hang out with and occupy. What he did, um, I'm not sure exactly how long ago, but a while ago, at least a year ago, is he he made it impossible for SEC to settle a mortgage fraud suit against Citigroup without admitting wrongdoing. Rakoff claimed that it was neither fair nor reasonable nor adequate nor in the public interest for the SEC to allow this suit to settle without any real discovery on what actually happened. Then what happened was there was an appeals process and the second circuit decided that Rakoff had overstepped his powers. And so now it's been overruled and the SEC seems to, there seems to be now precedent that they're allowed to basically do whatever they want and not actually examine further. Jordan, is this the end of any hint of checks and balances on what the SEC can and can't do? Um, I don't think it is. I, you know, the line that, that's gotten repeated a few times about this is that Rakoff lost this battle. He got bench slapped, which is, I, I didn't create that. That's from above the law. It's one of their uh, favorite phrases. For, but um, he got overturned on appeal. And his legal theory, I think, was a, a lot of people agreed was, you know, very morally satisfying. It, it wasn't necessary. Nobody seemed to think it was really airtight. And we can get more into that later. But 
he may have lost the battle, but he seems to have won the larger war because the new head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has a policy against offering these neither admit nor deny deals. She wants banks now to admit wrongdoing. And you're seeing this in other regulatory agencies, and you've seen it happen with hedge funds and with some large banks in their civil uh, you know, agreements. So even if legally he didn't win, you know, he sparked a big change. That's, I think, very important in a lot of respects. So without getting too deep into the jurisprudence here, if a bank admits wrongdoing, what are the negative consequences and why were the banks keen to avoid doing that? Well, it's all about getting sued down the road, really. If you admit wrongdoing in a suit with the SEC, right, that is throwing open the doors to a uh, plaintiff's lawyer, to a trial lawyer to come down the line and sue you for the exact same things for investors or someone who thinks they were defrauded or whatnot. And that was one of the big motivations that banks had to not admitting to any fault in these cases for follow-on suits. It's essentially a way of saving money. And I think that's how the SEC sort of saw it. It wasn't a matter of justice to them. It was a matter of saying, okay, we're settling for this much and we're capping your liability. You might still get sued down the line, but the plaintiff's lawyers are going to have to do a lot more work to actually prove what you did wrong. They're not going to have it handed to them on a silver platter. And this was considered a feature by the SEC. The SEC thought that plaintiffs not being able to sue banks was a good thing. I think that what they saw as a feature <laughs> was getting a, a settlement. To them, smoothing the way to getting, you know, to getting a scalp was what they saw as the feature here. I'd like to I'd go a little bit backwards and talk a little bit more about this. You rake this concept that Rakoff lost the battle but won the war yeah. because it wasn't the right war. I mean, if we want to say it that way, then we have to specify what we mean by the war. And what we've just realized is that the war was against future litigation and the war was against future money. But what Rakoff, and by the way, Rakoff recently in January, actually, of this year, wrote this amazing essay that he published. I think the essay was something called, Why Hasn't Any Bank Executive Gone to Jail? So he spent a bunch of times making the point that we are not prosecuting individuals anymore, we're only prosecuting banks, and that's the problem. So that war that Rakoff claimed hasn't been won, right? All we've seen right now is that banks are actually paying more money. And by the way, we saw a recent art news about BNP Paribas, where Benjamin Losky from the Department of Financial Services is trying to get someone actually fired. And, you know, like that's big news because we never do that, but it's still not sending anyone to jail or anything. Although the BNP Paribas news, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this in a future podcast, if and when they finally become criminally prosecuted, what people are talking about at BNP Paribas is a real fine. We're talking $10 billion, which is a major chunk of their equity and will force them to recapitalize themselves and is causing squeals of pain from the president of France on down, as opposed to the kind of fines which Jed Rakoff was complaining about, which have none of those effects and which really have no effect on on the bank's capital levels or ability to pay bonuses or anything like that. Yeah, I I, I think part of what made Rakoff's first opinion, the one that kind of everyone coalesced around and started celebrating, interesting to me was is people kind of projected a lot onto it. Um, and in the end, it really was an opinion just about not giving people just total slaps on the wrist. It wasn't necessarily about this wider war. And it's interesting to me that it evolved into that. Incidentally, for anyone listening, I can highly recommend that you actually read these opinions by Jed Rakoff. He's one of the best writers on the federal bench. And his opinions are an absolute joy to read. And that is actually one of the reasons why they got circulated so widely and so many people started lining up behind them. It's because you can't read these things without 
thinking to yourself, you go, Jed. You know, yes. you're, you're amazing. And I'd like to throw in also that if you take a look at the Second Circuit decision from this week, you'll see that a bunch of people, including the Occupy the SEC, uh, filed amicus briefs on behalf of Judge Rakoff. And a few amicus briefs were also prepared on behalf of the other side, including from like SIFMA. Like basically, it's like the good guys versus the bad guys. You know, it's like they just define themselves by the amicus briefs that, you're, that you see, which were ignored. I, I will say it also does kind of open up a model for a new kind of activist judge in the sense that we now see that he has the power to actually change policy just by kind of with a bully pulpit, right? Judges haven't traditionally done that. But he has actually almost single-handedly forced the executive branch to rethink the way it does business. And that, I think, I wouldn't be surprised if other judges in the future could take some inspiration from that. And by the way, Occupy the SEC, I'm on the email chain with them discussing this decision. They're actually of the opinion that Judge Rakoff might be able to take this decision to the Supreme Court. They don't actually know whether he would or whether it's possible, but that would be super interesting. Which opens up the route to Jed Rakoff as the new Balthazar Garzon, the mind boggles. We will we will move on, however, <laughs> because honestly, I, I can't even wrap my, round, my, my mind around that one. We are going to move on to the big macroeconomic news of the week, which was not another boring jobs report last week on Friday, which came in exactly where everyone thought it would do, but instead was the announcement the previous day by the European Central Bank, which under the aegis of Mario Draghi has been doing lots and lots of things which people thought the European Central Bank would never do. And it has dipped into its armory and taken out a weapon which no one has ever used before. Very, No one outside Denmark, I don't think, has ever used before which is this thing called, okay, brace yourselves, negative interest on reserves, which I'm sure you all know what it is, but just to sort of help you out, when banks, a, a central bank is basically a bank for banks. And when banks have excess money, what they do is they put that money on deposit at the central bank. And then the central bank pays something called IOER, interest on excess reserves. And so the banks make money just like if you have or rather, if you had a checking account 10 years ago, you might you might have received a tiny bit of interest on it. Uh, the European Central Bank has now taken that interest rate and turned it negative. It's now minus 0.1%, which is fascinating because it's very uncommon to find a deposit account, which is basically what these things are, which has a negative interest rate. But the idea here is exactly to persuade the banks to stop just keeping their bank, their money on deposit and start lending it out to all of those European businesses which need some credit. Kathy, what do you think of this? Well, I have two opinions. First of all, zero is just another number on the number <laughs> line. Um, I'm math babe and I said so. Um, so in that sense, like big whoop, you know, they're all, you know, every bank is going to look at their portfolio and figure out where to put their money and they're going to just take the biggest number that they can get. Um, I do have a question, which I'm going to ask you, Felix, in a second, or you, Jordan, about wh- why can't they just keep their money? Um, what exactly is keeping them from um, do- doing something else with that money, stuffing it under the, the pillow? But the other thing I want to say is that, you know, zero is another number, but it's also a very psych- like important psychological boundary. And as I understand it from reading the articles, the reason people were worried about that, you know, passing that number, passing that um, that limit 
was a money market disruption, namely that typically they see banks passing on the interest they get to their money market customers. And they're worried that if that continues, then they'll be breaking the buck in some sense in the money market. Yeah, Money market funds were much less of a big deal in Europe than they are in the US. Like one of the problems with negative interest on excess bank reserves in the US is because it really would damage money market funds a lot. In in Europe, it's less of a big deal. But you're right that there's an interesting psychological thing going on here that in theory, banks just take the highest interest rate they can find, you know, credit adjusted, risk adjusted, and and it doesn't matter if you're comparing minus two to minus one or whether you're comparing three to two. But in reality, people really care about nominal interest rates and whether they're positive or negative. The one thing which I really ought to mention as well is that this is not the most important thing that the ECB did on Thursday. The most important thing that the ECB did was, well, it was two, two other things were more important than this. One was this thing called TLDROs. You're going to love that. It's called Targeted Long-Term Repurchase. Is it repurchase? Something, something like that, operations, where essentially the central bank is lending long-term money to European banks and telling them, in a targeted manner to go out and lend this money to the small and medium-sized businesses, especially in Southern Europe, which just cannot get credit. And it's saying, we are, just, we are really trying to target the flow of cash to the people who need it. To, uh, they're also increasing the money supply in Europe by getting rid of this thing called sterilization. They're also saying that, in the words of Mario Draghi, I'm not done yet, that <laughs> he's, he's going to come out and do even more things, possibly even unto some kind of European version of quantitative easing. Right. And, and so this is all a sign, Jordan, is it not, that Europe is in, I believe the technical term is deep doo-doo. Uh, yeah. I, you know, it, was <laughs> it, was, it was kind of interesting to me watching the American reaction um, to this yesterday because there was a flood of articles that the headlines were all some variation on WTF, did Europe just do? What just happened to their economy? And I think that the, the sense of crisis here in the U.S. is sort of uh, kind of eased a little bit about Europe because it, it, it's a quieter crisis that's going on there. They, the reason this is all happening is because they can't even hit their inflation targets. They're, they're looking at deflation. They're, it's becoming a real serious risk. And, and deflation, you, know, you hear constantly in the U.S. About, about inflation and the you know, hyperinflation is coming. We're going to be the next Zimbabwe. That, that's not really... Anything most of the world's frightened about at this point. Well, it's what the Germans have frightened about. Well, the, fr- Germ- yeah, yeah. well <laughs> the Germans have some yeah. uh, problematic historical memories of that. Ironically, because deflation also uh, wrecked their economy during the Weimar era. So I, I don't know why they don't have an equal fear of that. But anyway, deflation kills economies as well. Um, it makes it harder to pay off debts, whatnot. And if that really takes hold, it's a long-term problem. And so they, they've kind of unleashed this arsenal. And all of a sudden, I think Americans are kind of looking up and going, oh, something's really still very, very wrong here. And it should be mentioned that it's not just deflation that the ECB is worried about. They have a target of 2% inflation. They're worried about their own credibility. If they cannot get the inflation rate in the Eurozone to 2%, that means they aren't as powerful as everyone needs them to be. There's a couple of other problems involved here. Number one is that there are actually countries in the Eurozone which already have deflation. Most spectacularly Greece has quite severe deflation and is doing horrible, horrible things to the economy. And then more generally, the Eurozone has huge amounts of debt and especially sovereign debt. And by far the most painless way of paying down debt is to just inflate it away. So there's a lot of good reason why you want a bit of inflation to sort of soothe away some of those nasty debt problems. Yeah. And and I'm glad you brought up Greece because 
you know, as an occupier, my my attention is is often on like the people that are worst off, and definitely Greece is an example of that in Europe. And my feeling about this kind of monetary policy stuff, and we call it the arsenal and stuff, but at the end of the day, we're talking about banks, and then we're talking about giving banks money to give to businesses. And if you look in Greece as to where that money is actually going to go, when it if and if it goes, it's not going to be to the people that actually are in debt and are jobless and who's actually suffering under deflation. So it's like this tie that lifts all boats, except it lifts the boats at the very bottom so little that we at some point we start needing to care about the relative lift rather than the absolute lift. But, so, but you're, you're, you're asking monetary policy here to do the job of fiscal policy. Monetary policy can never direct money to poor people. Right. So I guess the question is, why are we doing monetary policy instead of fiscal policy? Because we don't have fiscal union in Europe yeah. and we're not going to... Yeah, solve that one. But overnight. also, in terms of the bailout. Well, yeah. This, what is, <laughs> yeah okay, but the yeah. same thing could be said in this country. Yeah. I'm, I mean, like in this country, you have quantitative easing, which is the same. Which has the same problem. We're lifting the boats at the top, and we're I, I do think, inflating the stock market. But we're not actually helping right. people. And, 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 and that is, like, I mean, it's an important message to yeah. to end on here. That when we talk about the things that central banks do. They can be incredibly important from a macroeconomic perspective. They can have a big effect on banks and the banking sector and the financial sector and indeed on the entire economy. But there really is a limit to what central banks can do in terms of helping out the poorest members of society. And in both the US and in Europe, we have reached that limit. Thank you for saying it that well. And so on which note, Jordan is going to tell us all about everybody's favorite hedge fund billionaire, Mr. Stephen A. Cohen. Stephen, Stevie, 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 poor Stevie. So uh, Stephen A. Cohen was once, he was the, the King Kong of the hedge fund world. He was, you know, the, the, the champion investor. Um, and then the federal government decided that maybe there was some insider trading going on at SAC Capital, his fund. And thus began a roughly, I think it was a 10-year investigation it, it took about that just went on and on and on. And eventually, it ended with several of his employees getting nailed for insider trading. And SAC Capital itself pled guilty to offenses and no longer exists. It no longer exists. That's right. It's been turned into what's called a family office, which means essentially that you're not allowed to uh, invest other people's money, but you're allowed to invest your own money. And we're talking about New York Magazine has a kind of retrospective on this case that came out this week. And it's very autumn of the patriarch. It's <laughs> Stephen A. Gohm in, in, in the aftermath of all this. And most of it is meant to sort of almost make you feel sad for the man. Um, yeah, yeah. It takes you through his experience very nearly managing at the height of his powers to buy the Los Angeles Dodgers and the, the emotional dagger that uh, to the heart when uh, he he lost out to the group, the Guggenheim Partners, fronted by Magic Johnson, and just how kind of things unraveled for him. But then the last line reminds us all that he is $11 billion of his own dollars, you know, still that he gets to trade anyway in this family office and that he never went to jail, which I think underscores, again, why these Wall Street prosecutions and in particular insider trading cases have been just so unsatisfying to anybody who wants to see um, kind of justice on Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like what we should be talking about is the way that article was framed more than about Stephen Cohen himself, because, again, like as you said, the article is it seems like either a tongue in cheek or totally sympathetic to Stephen Cohen. And until you read the last line where he's like, oh, it could be worse. He still has $11 billion. You're like, okay, tongue in cheek. That's the final verdict. But who reads five pages unless they're actually going to talk about stuff on a podcast? So, you know, the whole time I was like, well, 
we didn't talk about this guy actually doing bad things. We talked about his relationship with his wife and his children, uh, for seven children, by the way. It was actually kind of a crazy framing. But yes, you're right. Insider trading is, first of all, the only thing the SEC ever does. And second of all, very unsatisfying for people like me who think about fraud in the system and mortgage-backed securities and the over-complex system that allows people to get away with evil doings. But it's it's also weirdly a throwback to the 80s and Gordon Gecko and Ivan Bosky and the idea of Wheeler Dealer Wall Street Titans. And it's interesting to me that Cohen was never a banker. He was never technically really on Wall Street. He just had his little shop up in Greenwich and would trade the market. But he did those kind of Gordon Gecko deals where he would try and get better information on companies than anyone else and be able to trade on that information and make money on it. And then the question is, is what he did legal? And it certainly seems that prosecutors convinced themselves that it wasn't and spent a huge amount of effort trying to prove that. And when it came to his company, they succeeded. And when it came to him personally, they failed. There's also an interesting dichotomy here. I mean, you know, Pripahara, the, the U.S. attorney for Manhattan for Southern District of New York, has about 80 of these insider trading convictions under his belt now. 80. I mean, that th- this is one of – he's gone after some bigger banks, but this is probably going to be his biggest legacy is just going after these hedge fund types on, on these insider deals. And – one of the theories about why he's been so aggressive about them is that these are the easy cases. You know, as far as white collar crime goes, it's pretty cut and dry compared to the other sorts of more nebulous seeming crimes that a lot of people would like to see prosecuted involving the fi- from the financial crisis. At the same time, after wiretaps and, and millions of pages reviewed, they still could not get the man on top. And that's how hard it is to do one of these white collar investigations. I mean, it, it kind of it shows you how tough it is to police Wall Street, even when it comes to the, quote, easy cases. Yeah, well, and by the way, Rakoff's essay talked about this very thing that people, they, they go for the easy cases. But you're right, they're not trivial. And they it, it's something like a mob case, I assume, as a lawyer. They, the New York Magazine article talked about how they tried to turn one of his lieutenants against him and they failed. Um, but I do, I do want to just focus a little bit, step one step up, which is this idea that we always do uh, insider trading cases. We never do the hard cases. I was actually recruited by the SEC in 2012. And even though I'd applied to work there in 2009, and they had not even bothered to respond to my application, um, leaving DE Shaw as a quant. So in 2012, they approached me and said, hey, Kathy, do you want to do you want to work with us? And I decided to have lunch with them. And coincidentally, this was the day when I had, through my uh, Occupy Group Alternative Banking, agreed to talk with Vikram Pandit and released a press release saying, hey, Vikram Pandit, give me a call anytime. So I had my phone on the table at lunch with the SEC person I was talking to. I told her, like, you'll have to pardon me if I if I get a phone call from Vikram Pandit, because I'll have to take that. And she said, who's Vikram Pandit? <laughs> um, so I was like, oh, wow. Wow. Um, Kathy, just for the two of the podcast listeners who are in her shoes, who is Vikram Pandit? Vikram Pandit was the CEO of Citigroup at the time and one of the biggest banks and under a bunch of cases, including the one that Rakoff was dealing with. Um, so her office um, in enforcement was dealing with these cases. I I have no explanation for the fact that she didn't know who her companion was. But when I talked to her about the job that she was actually offering me, you know, of course, it, I was interested in looking at the rating agency models for the AAA rated mortgage-backed securities, the ABS CDOs that blew up the world. And she wanted me to work for insider trading cases. 
I said no, I did not work for the SEC. But the last story I want to say is I said, well, look, it's 2012. I want to work on the mortgage-backed security rating agency models because I want to show that they knew that their models were fraudulent. They knew that AAA ratings did not, were not deserved. But I'm worried about the statute of limitations since this is all almost five years old. What is the deal with that? And she said, I have no idea. I haven't even thought about that question. Mm-hmm. So that just goes to show you she was, you know, high up in the SEC enforcement. She, she was high up? She was. And she didn't know who Vikram Pandit was, and she didn't know what the statute of limitations was on on securities laws. Correct. On which, on which encouraging good, good for government work. On which encouraging, <laughs> though, and and you know, I'm sure she was. How much do you think she was paid? You know, some people are paid um, because they're psychopaths, and some people are paid because they're ignorant. You know, in, in, in corrupt SEC, organizations. The SEC is quite famous. The SEC is quite famous for A, not paying very well, and B, for being stuffed overwhelmingly with lawyers. And I right. think what yeah. happens is that the lawyers, you know, lawyers who don't get paid very well tend not to be that good. And also, they do wind up just disappearing down into sort of insider trading law rabbit holes and finding it quite difficult to see the big I mean, picture. The answer is she was being paid well. I mean, not by perhaps investor banking um, standards, but certainly well, by normal standards. As I say, I don't know what the SEC tops out as. It can't be more than like 176? No, cr- no, no. Like, they were offering me 200. Oh, really? So she was being paid more than that. Okay. Hmm. So we are moving on to our lightning numbers round, and we have discovered that the numbers are big this week. Yes, they are. What's yours? My number is 530,000, and that's the number of dollars someone has to pay to become a libertarian pirate. What? Awesome. I love this. <laughs> yes. Okay, now you're, you're going to have to explain more than that. <laughs> I don't know why this makes me so happy, but I'm going to try to explain it. Do you know Peter Thiel? Like He's yeah. like a libertarian um, PayPal founder, billionaire. He's mm. given some money, not a lot, but I'd like to just throw that in because everyone knows who that guy is, to um, to help start a floating nation. The Seasteaders. Yes, for libertarians. <laughs> yes. And I want these people to leave, so this would be great you know, for and, me. And the the price of citizenship is $530,000. That's correct. That's How did they arrive at this number? No clue. But let me just say a couple things that make me happy about this. First of all, it's never going to happen because they can't agree on how it should be governed because, of course, <laughs> they're libertarian. <laughs> this is like the not the first time, not the second time. This is probably the 18th time this has been tried and they always end up squabbling and never... And this is, this is money which will buy a boat, basically, which will then right. be in international waters and govern itself right. and float somewhere and be outside that long arm I, of I anyone's always laws. I imagine like the flotilla from Snow Crash. That's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of what I, I picture. What, and yeah. probably where they got it from, I imagine. Yeah. But. And so my real question is like, who's going to do the dishes? You know, who, like, my thing is, like, if everyone has to pay $530,000 to just exist on this island, then, then nobody is going to be like, I'm going to do the dishes now. That's I mean, who's well, going to be? Well, can't you just hire Filipino workers like the rest of? Yeah, the I world? thought the point was all sorts of human I depravity see. could just like. That's take not place what they, there. they didn't mention. That they like, made it seem very exclusive, except for the Filipino workers. So, I guess I, I one time talked. I just want to dwell on this. I one time talked to a lawyer who like, specialized in maritime law uh, about seasteaders, just to get his opinion. And he, he said, "Yeah, you know, you could probably pull it off." But then what happens when eventually the pirates are like who are there is a pirate problem in in this world realize that there is a like a floating island full of billionaires. Oh yes. <laughs> and and the US Navy decides it's not going to come help you because yes. you're all trying to evade its taxes. Exactly. Um, That's kind of my favorite part but don't tell anyone. <laughs> just imagining the pirates descending on this <laughs> like, this island. Can you of, imagine like a bunch of oh guys in small age just being like, "Hey, you hear about over in the Pacific?" Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but anyway, so um, my so, number. No. Oh, no, your number? No, my number net because your number... This is bigger. Jordan is even bigger than my number. Because I can come up with a big number. (laughs) My number is, by these standards, positively middling-sized. My number is $110 million. $110 million, okay, is the price of the penthouse apartment at the Woolworth building, which is one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. It's down here in downtown Manhattan, not very far from the Slate offices. And it was the tallest building in the world for about 20-some years. And it is a beautiful piece of Gothic skyscraper architecture. And back after 9-11, there were lots of plans to convert it into offices. But now they've decided that it's much more profitable to turn it into apartments. And this apartment... The top nine floors are going to be converted into this one uber-glamorous apartment and it's going on the market at $110 million. And the thing which really strikes me about this number, more than anything else, is that this is not the first time they have proposed turning the top floors of the Woolworth building into an apartment. They proposed this in 2000, 14 years ago. And back in 2000, they expected that the penthouse apartment was going to be worth $15 million dollars which gives you an idea of the inflation at the ultra-high end of the luxury real estate market. We have gone from $15 million to $110 million in 14 years. Piketty. It's all Piketty. By the way... <laughs> and, and China. My friend has been doing a little uh, thought experiment with how many, you know, just estimating how many people could afford this. Just What's the market for that? I've been wondering about that. And he came to uh, 5000 in the world, which, you know... But sounds- most of them could afford it 20 times over. Um, yeah, and it's a, of course, it's a question of what do you mean by afford it, and can you take out a mortgage on a hundred and ten million dollar penthouse? You can actually. It's it's actually it's actually incredibly easy. This is one of the other things which happens. I'll do it. I'll if do you it. have, well, no. What happens is that if you have a couple of hundred million dollars being managed for you by UBS, say, or any other wealth management company, what they will do is they will lend you money against your portfolio at an interest rate of somewhere in the range of 1% to 2%, which is cheaper than the mortgage rate. Crazy. So mortgage rates are 3 or 4%. You can actually borrow money at 1% to 2% to buy these apartments. That is nuts. Rich keep on Even so, it's richer. not that many people, <laughs> especially in New York. It's not that many people. No, but this, you know, it will almost certainly get bought by someone who lives there two or three weeks a year, True. which is depressing. Empty castle in the sky. Jordan, um, you have the biggest number. I do. It's a fun one. So my number is $76.6 billion. <sighs> that, that's a lot of a penthouse month. apartments. Um, right there. Well, it's also... And it's even more seasetting actu- citizenships. <laughs> it's actually... Uh, it's also a lot of houses. Precisely, according to the brokerage Redfin, it is the amount of, of Bill Gates' wealth it would take to buy all of the houses in Boston. Every single one Wait, of what's them. What's this got to do with Bill Gates? It has nothing to do with Bill Gates. Uh, no. So what this brokerage did was they went and looked at basically a group of billionaires and saw which cities around the country could they buy with their wealth. And it would take about $76.6 billion to buy Boston, all of the residential real estate there, according to their calculations, which aren't totally crazy. Their methodology was all right. And they looked at who could afford such a thing. And they said, well, Bill Gates is the man who that, that's right about the, in line with his wealth. The Koch brothers between them could do it. 
Yeah, the Koch brothers, I think they had Buying Atlanta, I want to say off the top of my head, and the Walton family, uh, the heirs, were, were able to pool their money for Seattle. But they could also buy Austin if they preferred a warmer climate. Possibly Dallas was in their range, too. There were all so, sorts of options. So disgusting. Um, so this is your wealth inequality lesson for the week. <laughs> wow. In real estate. So on which real estate-tinged note, you, can, you have your choice. You can buy real estate in the oceans or at the top of the Woolworth building or just the entire city of Boston. <laughs> we, will, we will leave it for this edition of Slate Money. You can write to us with your comments and complaints and suggestions and everything and anything else. SlateMoney at Slate.com. We would appreciate that. The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of all of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon, and we'll talk to you again next week on Slate Money. Slate Money.